Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. Craig and I did a, a duet and we're going to do repeat two weeks ago. And we had mission weekend, and then we're going to go back into what we were discussing, which is how to read the Bible. How, you know, part of our value system and part of the word for us as a, as a people is that we have to be people of the word. And so part of uh, what Dr. Oman, who's doing, he's defending his dissertation, his PhD in New Testament studies at South uh, Eastern Baptist Seminary this spring. All, the, all those august doctors querying the new young doctor. Okay. Something. Yeah. So something like that. Well, anyway, uh, one of the things we wanted to do is just keep dialoguing about, and, and I had some really good feedback. I, you know, at the age of about 39 or so, the Lord said to me after I'd done all the schooling I ever wanted to do, go to seminary. And I was really reluctant to do that because I, I just wasn't interested in it. But an amazing thing, it changed my life. It changed my love for the Word of God. And it, it was really some of what we're going to be sharing. Now, I took a whole semester of it in a lot more depth, but we're trying to give you some highlights to help inspire you because the, the whole goal of what we're doing is to create a discipline that will translate eventually into a devotion. And, and the discipline of engaging with the scriptures and just some of the proper ways to engage in the scriptures. So, so last week we, we, we hit on some major contextual points that I, I just want to remind us of. Kind of the thing we're going to reemphasize today is ask yourself, what's the point of this narrative, this little section here? What is the point? It's kind of like everything you ever read you know, reading comprehension tests that you had in your SATs. If you didn't get what the point is, your English score wasn't very good. And some of you need to learn how to read what's the point, okay? And that's really what we're saying is don't just read it without thinking. Engage your mind, right? That's right. And just real quick, one good way to do that, especially with a narrative, is to read from the outside in. The intro and the conclusion if you can figure those out, the insides come together. So one of the things we didn't get into is the Bible's full of a lot of different types of literature, right? True. Yeah. So do you read them all the same? No. Each one uh, has its own sort of rules of engagement. So knowing what you're reading will give you kind of a, almost a, a contractual sense of, of what to expect. So like when you read a mystery novel, you know someone did it. <laughs> Someone you also did. know that in the middle of the story, the people who seem guilty probably aren't because you're in the middle of the novel. So you know it can't be. <laughs> Couldn't be. Yeah. That's the red herring, right? And uh, so, you know, you're the, each genre, whatever it is, uh, generates expectations and anticipations that you read according to. And then often the author will surprise you. But in order for that surprise to work, they need to get you anticipating. And sometimes the genre, um, whatever it is, is is for doing that. Yeah, and then there's, uh, there's some genres that aren't so much stories. They're kind of poetry and yeah. bits of wisdom. Yeah. Proverbs. Proverbs, yeah. And uh, 
Those you can kind of chew on, like a morsel, that's kind of what they're for. Sometimes they're connected, other times they're just uh, independent. But if you gather enough of them, you can almost begin to learn, you know, you can almost learn uh, an approach to life called wisdom, being wise, because it's, you have all these scattered examples of, of ways to approach little problems. And um, yeah, that's, I love. When I was anxious in my 20s, for whatever reason, that's a good time to be anxious, right? You guys who are in your 20s are like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> and the, the weird thing with me whenever I was anxious is I always thought, oh, God must not love me. Why do I feel like this? No, that's not true. But one of the things that I used to do to get back on track and sometimes Annie would help me with this when we were dating, is we would read the Proverbs together because the world seems so orderly and predictable and wise. If you work hard, blessings will come. If you're kind to your neighbor and don't get angry too quickly, you know, just regular stuff. And I'd look, even if I didn't really need the actual wisdom, I needed the comfort <laughs> that wisdom provided. So, I don't know, I used to read that for that might be a help for you if, if you're like me. I, I think for me, uh, and this is one of the things I, uh, I just, people ask me, what is the best, what's the best Bible study reading program? And the answer is a whole bunch of them, okay? Yeah. The, there's no one, one size fits all. But I will say this, if, if you have never read the whole Bible, I would encourage you to do a, a read through the Bible in a year program. There, there's a ton of them out there. Uh, the Bible app has them. The YouVersion Bible app is incredible. Uh, it's one size, they have every kind of uh, size you need. And I, I would encourage it because they give you prompts and Oh, you're about five days behind. You didn't read. It does all that, you know, guilt stuff. And, you know, you agreed to do it. So, um, <laughs> so and then you go, yeah, but I, do I have to read every one of the genealogical lists? And the answer is, yeah, please do. And what will happen? And see, I think this is one of the things that... Um, one guy says, when you talk about the context of the Bible, I always say you have to start with the whole book. And of course, in a way, until you start getting a picture of the whole book, it's really... So maybe is that why we have elders who have actually been reading this book maybe for years and years? <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone's, it's like a journey, you know, where the person who's already been on a trail can help you figure out where to go. And... We all need each other that way at, at, our, at various points in our lives. And someone who is in front of us is a great resource for someone who, you know, hasn't, hasn't walked the trail just yet. And the same thing goes with the Bible. That's what, that's what we're all for. That's yeah. what we want to do. That's so fun. Well, one of the things we also want to get into is one of the actual genres a lot of us spend time in in the New Testament mm. called the epistles. And even the epistles... Uh, which all start after the book of Acts. And the first one, of course, is Romans. And then you have 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Then you have what's known as the pastoral epistles and epistles like 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus and then Thessalonians. So today we're going to read uh, two different types of epistles. And we're, we're just going to address some of the ways and observations. We're going to get into that at the end. But, but what we're, we're going to do is how do, you, how do you read a text? And 
we're going to let you see the sausage being made, okay? Because <laughs> uh, sometimes you just, you know, I, I know the recipe, but when do you add those eggs? You know, so, so here's, here's the, the, the scripture we want to, it's really a very, it's one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. It's out of Romans 3, and uh, we're going to throw up Romans 3 on the board. Um, and, you know, I think we are. Uh-oh, we got it? All right. Yeah, that, those are my notes, but yeah, you can put up the text. I mean, my notes are cool, too. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> it's okay. We'll, 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 you go ahead. Let's just, you want to go ahead and just yeah. get started? Yeah. So what's happening here in Romans 3, 1 through 9, this is a little, this is a, a, um, it's, a it's a tip to help you understand that even a, a genre like the epistles has many little sub-genres. And this one, in 3, 1 through 9, what's interesting about this is that Paul sets up a debate. And so he makes his point by actually dramatizing this little debate between himself and his other self, <laughs> uh, or, or Paul and then uh, another teacher who brings up good points. And so through this little debate, Paul ends up maneuvering his other self, the teacher, uh, to make the right, the, 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 ask the right questions and, and provide the right answers and then end up right where he wants them. And then uh, Paul, after that, gives him a lot of scriptures. So a lot of times when we're reading and you see a lot of question-answer kind of format, what you can do is you can um, arrange the text almost like the way a, a play works, like a drama where you have one character who says one thing and the other character who says the other. So what we're going to do is I'm going to play the part of Paul, and I think, right? Yes. And Steve's going to uh, play the part of the interrupter or the interlocutor. <laughs> yes, the interlocutor or the interrupter. That's right. Uh, I, I'm going to be the kind of the other voice that that Paul is actually demonstrating here. So we're going to start. Uh, yeah, and we we have not rehearsed this, so this is going to be. Yeah, yeah. Just so hang we, on. Yeah, we're we're, <laughs> we're you're doing you're seeing the play for the first time, That's and right. so are we. So Paul just says. A Jew who breaks God's law is, in essence, no different than a Gentile. But then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the Word of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Their faithfulness doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God, does it? By no means, a duh. <laughs> to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were unfaith? Oh, I. <laughs> You're reading my part. I'm, I'm, like I said, <laughs> I want Paul's part. That's it, though. <laughs> we had to wrestle for it. Okay. By no means, rather, let God be true and everyone else a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. True. But let me ask you this. If our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And I'm speaking in a human way. No, of course not. For then, how could God judge the world? Indeed. But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may result, as some people slanderously claim that we do? 
Indeed, their condemnation is just. So, so, so what then? Are, are we surpassed by them, these Gentiles? No, not at all. Just like I said from the start, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then after that is the scriptures. So um, when you understand how these little genres, uh, Paul uses this, in this case, it's called the diatribe, where he sets up a little debate. And, um, and then kind of uh, sets up a drama where he speaks to uh, an issue. And the reason he does that, why is that? This is complicated. I mean, we're not necessarily talking about Romans 3, 1 through 9 this morning, but if we were, um, there's at least five things going on there. <laughs> and he gets at them because a lot of times the truth is complicated and needs two people or more to kind of work their way towards it. So when you're dealing with a complex issue, what does that say? Go and talk to someone about it, someone who's willing to debate with you in a good way, and go and debate in such a way that you move towards truth and not just attack each other. There's two different kinds of a debate, right? There's the kind where you're both seeking truth, which is this kind that Paul illustrates for us, and there's the kind where you're competing, which is not right. That's what happens on Twitter. Yeah. And, and I thought a diatribe was a rant. Yeah, well, that's what we think a diatribe is, um, and there's some reasons for that. But no, in the ancient times, diatribe was, was more like a, a kind of a moral treatise where you had this situation where people would, would take on different persona and, and begin to address issues by talking to them in this kind so, of dialogue manner. So where, do, where else in the, in the Scripture do we find diatribe commonly? Oh, yeah. Well, an interesting part of it is like in the middle of Jesus' uh, mission instructions in chapter 10 of Luke, all of a sudden Jesus turns and says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, which are Galilean towns. Now, when you're reading that, you might think, wait, Jesus was just talking to the 70 missionaries, and, and, and now what, did he go all the way to these Galilean towns and, and talk to them? No. What he's doing is he's kind of like in the diatribe style, like a, like a preacher often does, he addresses another audience while actually in the presence of his literal audience so that when he speaks to this other audience, they understand the point of what he's saying. And so in the case of the missionaries, he's telling them, those who reject you reject me who sent you, and in turn they reject the one who sent me, God. And when you go to one of those towns and they reject you, shake the dust off your feet and say, the kingdom of God has come near. That's opposed to calling fire down from heaven, which is you shouldn't do. <laughs> That's what James and John wanted to do to the Samaritan village that did that. So Jesus is teaching them what to do in the case that you're rejected. And then he says, now woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. He didn't travel all the way to those cities to say those things to them. He is saying those things to them in, in that moment for the sake of his missionaries, saying, listen, when they do reject you, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it was for them. So understand that even when you're mistreated, God will take care of things as he should. And that will be a comfort to people who are like sheaves among wolves. Sheep among wolves. <laughs> sheaves among wolves. Yes, sheep among wolves. You know, sometimes we're attacked. Who's going to defend our honor? Jesus says, oh yes, God will. But you don't have to call fire down on heaven. God will take care of that. So you just relax. That's kind of what he's saying. So this whole idea of this kind of interlocutor, this interruption, this... this and and I'll, here, here's the thing. 
if you don't know to look for that, yeah, you won't weird. see it. Yeah, it'll be weird. It's kind of like this. If you've never, you know, I know people who say, um, I, you know, I just, I'm not, a, I'm not much of a reader. And, and I, I'm, there's all kinds of reasons for that. But if you've ever actually fallen in love with, let's say, an Agatha Christie whodunit, you, you know the plot. That's part of the reason it's so fun to read. Because you know the first five suspects they offer you with incredible conviction are not the guy that did it. Yeah. So immediately you're going, who's the most least obvious? Yeah. Ah, and then you know it's the one, and then of course you're wrong too. Because that's the way they write the novel, and all of them are that way, and you know it, it's predictable. And part of the reason you love, and, and here's what we all do I figured it out early. Mm-hmm. My Which wife almost is, never I'm usually happens. good at that. Annie is the best at that. I, I can't, sometimes I have to shush her, so because I, you know, don't, don't, she, gets don't it. Tell she gets it. And, and the th- <laughs> same's through of, you know, novels of international espionage. You know, some guys stopping, you know, the nuclear bomb or whatever. And, and we all know the predictability of the, but see, part of us have never read the Bible in, a, in this way. And we don't know that when we read Jeremiah, there's a lot of diatribe going on. And he's, he's, he, there, there's actually uh, uh, two characters or maybe three. And he's, he, there's, he's involving others because he's having a prophetic revelation of what God is trying to communicate to his people that he's been communicating historically throughout generations even. And so that's the other part is, is sometimes we are reading about these cities that these prophets are talking about and we're going, I don't get it. But it's kind of like the fact that we talk about today, this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about Cincinnati and uh, Los Angeles. Everybody know what Cincinnati and Los Angeles refers to today? How many of you don't get it? Shame on you. No, no. I mean, it's Super Bowl Sunday and Cincinnati and Los Angeles are having a Super Bowl. Now, if you just read those without any context, but all of you knew the context. Yeah. And, and so part of what happens is so many times you don't, you're sitting there and you're going, that's a major clue that would just knock your socks off if you got it, but you're bored with it. I'm bored. This is boring. No, you're just need to grow a little more. That's the way we need to say it. You just need to, you need to, you need to really read a few of these. And what will happen as you get into the Old Testament, particularly, you will begin to get hungry because all of a sudden you discover, oh, oh my goodness. You know, the Bible has these places it ref- refers to over and over and over and over and over boringly over again. And a lot of us never ever ask the question, what's the deal with that town? I think one of the things that's really important when those things are mentioned is to realize that the Bible is not an alternate time loop. Yeah. A lot of times it's because we're talking about stories in Agatha Christie and stuff like that, and that's, a, that's an alternate world. That's, that's a fictional world. 
the one thing that's true about the Bible is that you can actually go there. You can go to, to Bethsaida. For a while, they didn't know where it was because some landslides had, uh, you know, they thought, oh, this, this city doesn't exist, and then they found it. This happens over and over and over again. And all the unbelievers go, see, it wasn't really a true city. Totally. And then the archaeologist yeah. goes, oops. Yeah, in 1947, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, that just changed everything. You know, all these people thought nothing existed and whatever. It was like, come on. It's there. You can dig it up. You'll get in trouble unless you have permission. But it's there. So, um, you know, so when you see these cities and you read the names that are in these genealogies, those are flesh and blood people, just like I am right now. That's the same world that I now live in. It's just an earlier part on the timeline. And that really helps me understand the reality of it because that's a pretty unique feature of the religion. It's not even a religion. The, the, the fact that Jesus has come, lived, and died on that hill, in that spot, and then rose again from that grave. That's so we're gonna, we're, we're gonna jump into a pastoral epistle, yep. uh, 1 Thessalonians, and we're gonna do a little bit of, uh, yeah, why don't you take it away, Greg? Yeah, so what I'm illustrating in, in 1 Thessalonians is what to, to do in a letter, which is kind of neat. If you read one of Paul's letters, one cool thing to do is to list or mark the phrases that are part of the real-time conversation between Paul and his, and his church. And a lot of times those will be in the present tense and there'll be a lot of we and you type language. And if you mark those, um, you'll understand the conversation in, in, in that's, that's happening between him and the church. Now, a lot of times when we read that, we just think, oh yeah, that's, that, that's them, that's not us. But the cool thing to do with these letters is, and, and, and Pastor Steve says this often too, is to place yourself in that church. So if you mark those places where Paul is talking to the Thessalonians, and then you imagine yourself in the first century church of Thessaloniki, or Thessalonica, then you start to understand the text. So now, after you've marked those parts, what is the rest of it? Well, the rest of it is a little narrative. It's a little fragment of a story, often about Paul and his associates. It might be about Jesus. Uh, it, it might be about the future, about when Jesus is coming back, like in the end of First Thessalonians. It, it's these little fragments of narrative, and those are what Paul tells in order to support the conversation that he's having with his church. And when you combine them, you understand the letter and the heart of its author for the community that God loves. You just, all of a sudden, you're like, you're there. And now you, you're not only understanding the letter, but you were part of their church. And their church becomes part of Antioch, Raleigh. Do you understand how we become, we come enmeshed in, in, in the actual story of Paul and his letters? And, and they address us. And Paul begins to praise our faith when we are persecuted, because that's what happens here. So, um, you just know, one of the things yeah, I, I want... I'll, I'll be the interrupter here. Uh, He's good at it. I, I, yeah. I'm, <laughs> one of the things that um, we, we always need to do is we're sitting reading the Scripture, and, and he emphasized this, is you becoming one of the characters in the story. Yes. Uh, yeah. Maybe you could be in the Thessaloniki church, or maybe you could be 
Timothy or, or one of the other, Silas, who are also writing this letter, uh, co-authoring it with Paul. And you're going, okay, Timothy's mentioned last. He must be the junior member of the squad. Well, he was, and we know that from other letters. But as you get yourself in those positions, I, you know, it's really interesting after reading his notes yesterday, this morning I got up early and I just read 1 Thessalonians. And I, I was struck by just how this helpful, this little technique that Craig's talking about, I was overwhelmed with how much he loved that church. Oh gosh, yes, yes. So Man, much. that's why it's called a pastoral letter. He loved his, his, his folks. He loved what God was doing among the Thessalonica church, the Thessaloniki church. And he, 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 you could just, he was effusive with his love for them and his prayers for them. So we're going to get into that. Let's get in, into that part of the story. Yeah, so in chapter 1, verses 2 through 7, the first part of uh, 2 and 3 are the conversation level. So you can see that we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and Father. And then after that, what is it that remembers? Well, it's the story of their faith. He tells the story to the Thessalonians of the Thessalonians' own faith. Have you ever had your story told in order to encourage you about your story? That's what Paul's doing about the church. So your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, this is all past in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a little present tense interrupt. For we know, most of the interruptions, in, in, or not interruptions, but the uh, present tense stuff is we know. Um, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, this is when he first preached to them, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for, our, for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. He's telling the, the Thessalonians' own story back to them in order to praise the work of God in them and give thanks for them and also to help them stay true to the story they've already lived. Because in a persecution, you want to change the story. Is that not right? And Paul is saying that story actually is the valuable thing. You hung in there. You were transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have a great story to tell that other churches are telling. You're an example to them. Yeah. And so then you have this whole series of, of, of one example you know, uh, to another, and then they're exampling, and then all that goes through is basically discipleship. So yeah, there's other ones too. Um, how much he loves the church, as, as, as Steve was saying. So in chapter 2, verse 19, there's another one that's in the present. For what is our hope and joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And then in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it goes through and it says, Therefore, we couldn't bear it any longer. We had to get back to you. We needed to come and visit you. And he goes on to, to say uh, all sorts of wonderful things about how much he loves them and is so grateful to visit them again, hopefully soon. So those kinds of things, if you do that, you, you, will, you will feel loved by Paul the Apostle. Isn't that cool? You know, one of the, you, you see this, and in, in, in so you say, well, 
okay, I kind of get what you're talking about. But what we're just giving you observations here. Yeah. We're not teaching you what this is teaching. But some of what is being taught is inferred. Talk, talk, to, talk a little bit about what, how, we, how we learn t- from God through inference and not just direct mm. command. You guys don't know this, but everything you say to your friends or family members is a prompt. So language is, is not a code. It's partly a code, but it, the code is never complete. Everything that we say is actually a prompt to get our partner to start thinking along the lines that we point them. So everything in the code part of the language is incomplete, and we infer the rest. And what speaking is, or conversations are, is, is inviting you to make the right, as, wrong, as opposed to the wrong, inference. And that's actually the example that I gave a couple of weeks ago, you know, when I said, it's not by accident that a group of baboons is called a Congress. Right? And you guys laughed at that because you got it, and I didn't explain it. You just, you just know. So that, that whole dumb little joke is basically serving you a prompt to do your own thinking, to infer what I mean, and then you laughed because you got it. And a lot of times we, we need to get to a point where we understand that God is prompting us. Think in this way. Read my words. They're, they're not optional. <laughs> but... What they're asking us to do is to begin to churn where he wants you to go with this. And once you start doing that, you'll realize, oh, now there's right and wrong ways to do that. Um, so that's why you know, getting well-practiced in reading God's word is really important because then you begin to develop instincts for where that mind needs to go to fill in the, the, and follow the prompt where he wants us to think, how he wants us to change. And a lot of times he'll throw in little... Uh, little tensions and things to get us to switch how we do that. I, I can't tell you how many times uh, when I was a younger believer uh, in, in probably a, an American culture that was a lot different than the one we have today uh, in the 1970s. Um, and the Bible offended me many times. And I was like, I don't want to read that anymore. I kind of believe in Jesus, but I'm not... I'm not sure I even believe in the God of the Old Testament. I mean, you know, I said stuff like that in my youth and stupidity. Uh, Not to say you're stupid. I was. How about that? But one of the things that what we're talking about, and there's a whole discipline of this, and we're not going to get into it. We're just going to hit some highlights. But what we're really talking about is inductive Bible study versus deductive Bible study. And you go, well, those are two let me just explain what inductive is. Inductive is you don't bring a ton of presuppositions to the text. Now, here's the deal. It's impossible to bring no presuppositions to the text because you uh, have a presupposition about what meaning certain words have. So you already have that. But when you come to the New Testament or the Old Testament, you have to question yourself and make sure do you even know what sanctification means? Well, probably not. And even if you have a superficial understanding, it may be just that, incredibly superficial. And so when you read a text and you're, you're drawing all kinds of... See, the, the temptation is always to immediately draw conclusions and applications. 
And what I'm going to ask you to do is what Craig said last week, slow down. And the first thing you want to do is make observations. And I'm going to give you a couple of, and you can break out your pens now if you want to write down something. Write this in the, write this in the back of your Bible. Um, you want to recognize terms that you may not be familiar with. You want, you want to be able to say, you know, those are some words, some cities, some, those are some ideas or phrases that I'm just not really familiar with. Write those down. Note them. They're, they're pregnant with meaning that you're going to miss a lot of the meaning if you don't begin to investigate it. The second thing is, look at the relationship between those terms. There may be, and, and I'm, I'm being a little bit abstract here because I'm trying to finish this up, but what will happen is, is if, if you'll begin to be inquisitive, I'm going to give you some really good practical things to be inquisitive about. Where are the comparisons? Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida. If what was done in Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a comparison. Jesus did it. He's teaching through comparison. Contrast. Repetition. Dialogue and interchange. Conflict. These are all major. There's, not, there's nothing supernatural about any of these. This is the way good writers try to get your attention. And if you aren't looking for that, you're going to miss a lot of what is being said in that text. Class, I know you're getting a little bored here, but the, believe it or not, this is what will make the Bible come alive. Now, the last, the last point I want to give you. Who, what, where, why, when, and how. The five W's and the one H. Rudyard Kipling had a little poem. He said, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why, when and how, where and who. If you will, if you will just approach the, t you say, well, that's all. I can remember that because my English teacher taught me that. Well, your English teacher taught you that because, can I just tell you that in uh, in my MBA strategy courses, that is what my professor taught me. He said, everybody thinks strategy is a vision, and it's not. And everybody thinks strategy is a mission. It's not. Strategy is figuring out how, who, what, why, where, when. That's, that's really what strategy is. Strategic thinking is part of how you have to read the Bible, because the Bible is full of strategy. One way to put it is kind of a, an example I heard. Someone did a test um, and got some test subjects together for a cognitive science um, experiment, and they said, everybody, estimate the crime rate of the state of Michigan, and they all did. And they all, <laughs> if you're from Michigan, I'm sorry, they all underestimated. They all underestimated. And then they came back and talked to him afterwards, and they asked, why? Why did you underestimate? That and like we forgot that the city of Detroit was in Michigan. <laughs> but if you ask them what what state is Detroit in, they would all know. So much of what we're talking about is connecting things yeah. that are already in our brain, but we don't we don't bring them up when we should. And so many things in our life we f we fail to understand what God is doing, not because we don't know, but because we do know. And we didn't know, we didn't think to remember that Detroit is in Michigan. 
And, you know, when you're reading the Bible, the same thing needs to happen. That's why it's useful to do, as, as Steve was saying, to define words. Thou shalt not covet. What does that mean? Well, covet means it's okay for other people to have things that you don't. And it's not their responsibility to give them to you. It's your responsibility not to want them. How, how many think that would change the American culture right now? <laughs> so, they have no idea what covet means, or not to covet, yeah. You know, so, I mean, so when you, when you go through and you think, well, what does that mean? Yeah, I, oh, all right, that's kind of, you know, Detroit is in Michigan. Yeah. So, so part of what I, I want to encourage you, and this is just a, a little advertisement for the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament presents more challenges in some respects for us in the modern era than the New Testament. But you need to remember this. The first really hundred years of Christianity, well, even more than that, but the letters of, of Paul and the Gospels were being circulated. Um, they were gaining momentum, let's put it that way. But their scripture was the Old Testament. And, the, and so they lived by story. You and I have this distilled story. We've got the four Gospels. We have the book of Acts. And then the rest of the New Testament is kind of this distilled story that are called the, the epistles, the letters. And sometimes, and, and it's, in a lot of ways, those were presented in a very Greek format with the, with the story behind the details kind of taken out. And... And I think you shared earlier just this beautiful picture of how the Old Testament, if, if, if we spend our lifetime, and this is why those of us that are older and have been in the Bible for 45 years, it's more exciting now than it ever was. Because now we're, you know, I, I, I know this, we have not even begun, have we? And, and we begin to synthesize these things together. Why don't you close this up? Yeah. God wants to solve the evil that's in this world. And he does that by forming a people. And he saves them and forgives the evil that's in us and then turns us around and makes us the, the, the means to help other people do the same. That's God creates Israel. God creates the church. He's always creating a people, and we're in that story. And we're, we're here to fight evil by being the saved people God made us to be. Now, how do we know what our job is? We gotta follow the story. And then one of the things that we were talking about is the fact that today is Super Bowl Sunday and today we're gonna follow the game. We know the outcome. Someone's gonna win and someone's gonna lose. So we already know, like, you don't have to follow it, right? No, yeah, some of you are thinking, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but here's the thing. We follow it, those of us who like sports, because in the midst of that, all these surprising things are going to happen. We don't know what those are. But having followed it, those are going to be the most meaningful moments. And your life is that same story. All kinds of strange things are going to happen and already have. And that is where the meaning is. But we've got to follow the story. And if you know how to do that in respect to the story as it's been going all along, we know where it's going to end. Who's going to win? Who's going to win? Jesus is going to win. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Whose team do you want to be in? Jesus' turn. That's right. When it looks like Jesus isn't going to win, what is the truth? 
he's going to win. So when it looks like all these weird curves and stuff, that's just part of the adventure, my friends. Jesus is going to win. That's right. So now that you know that, we can play our part in a different way, can't we? It's part of what, you know, Leslie was saying to this morning about that storm. That's why he's sleeping in the boat. That's why David says, this guy's nothing. I don't care how tall he is. I'm going to cut his head off, right? He knew the story. He knew how it was going to win. So I think that's really a good thing to know. Amen. Let's Amen. all stand. I'm, I'm going to just pray a real simple prayer. Make them hungry, Lord. Make them ravenous to devour your word. Lord, that we would be a people that not just revere your word, but love your word. We love getting in it. We love reading it. And when we don't understand it, we are like kings. For it is the glory of a king to search out a matter. And it is the glory of the Lord to hide, hide it. And Lord, we want to be those kings and priests before you.